The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. The teleconference topic is the new H-1B policy changes. We hope to discuss changes pertaining both to the recent cases as well as the presidential proclamation of June 22nd. We will also talk about the litigation issues because I know that's another hot topic for most of you as H-1B employers to understand what are the options, how to strategize, and how to plan. Just in the past few weeks, uh, we've seen the changes with both the USCIS sort of reverting back on a couple of the policy memos, um, which is fabulous because they had to resend it, and uh, not so great news with the travel ban against H-1B, L-1, J-1, and uh, uh, certain other H-2B workers, etc. So with that, uh, I'm going to invite my esteemed colleague, Joel Yanovich, to discuss the executive order in brief, and then have Ali Terry, another esteemed colleague at the Murthy Law Firm, who also focuses on H-1B-related issues, to share some updates with you. So, uh, Joel, would you like to share a little bit about the executive order? Sure, yeah, let's, let's start talking a little bit about the executive order. We've been getting uh, many, many questions about the order, um, what it means, who it applies to, so um, let's, let's get started. Um, the executive order was released uh, on June 22nd, 2020, and it went into effect on June 24th. Um, it applies to a number of non-immigrant visa categories, including H-1B, H-4, H-2B, L-1, uh, many J-1s, uh, but since today our discussion is focused on the H-1B category, we will kind of keep it, uh, keep it, discuss the discussion focused on that topic, uh, H-1Bs as well as H-4s. Um, in short, if a foreign national um, wants to come in um, to, to the U.S. in H-1B or H-4 status, uh, they could potentially be subject to this executive order. Um, so the categories of people who are subject to the executive order, they need to meet all of the following requirements. First of all, the person is outside of the U.S. as of the effective date, which again, is, it was uh, 12.01 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on June 24th. The person does not have a non-immigrant visa that is valid on the effective date. And the person does not have an official travel document other than a visa, such as a transportation letter or, more commonly, advanced parole. Um, if the person meets all three of those criteria and does not fall under one of the exceptions, which we will discuss quickly uh, in a few minutes, that person cannot enter an H-1B or H-4 status. So, um, Ali, do you want to go over uh, the, the three factors for us, please? Perfect. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, so the first factor says that if a person is outside the United States as of the effective date, so June 24th, they're subject to this, right? This is one of the factors. 
this point seems fairly straightforward, but we've still been getting a lot of questions on it, right? A lot of people really want to know and discuss different scenarios in which this could possibly apply. So questions like, what if I was in the U.S. and F1 on that date? Does it apply to me? Um, things like, what if I was in the U.S. on the date, but I travel back to India after that? What if I was just laid off my employer and I'm in the 60-day grace period? So the answer to all of these questions is basically the same. If you were in the U.S. on June 24th, the executive order does not apply to you. Well, okay. Uh, that sounds certainly interesting, Ali. And again, I appreciate your input. It's certainly, I think there's a lot of gray areas we can all appreciate because if you are on 24, the 24th, but uh, like you said, leave the country and travel, you're not going to be able to get the visa if the consulates are closed anyhow. And the question is, why will the consular officer now issue a visa to you because you decided to leave after the 24th? But these are all, I guess, where the questions are. So the next criteria is that the person does not have a valid unexpired visa as of the effective date. Again, the date is June 24th. So again, part of this is fairly clear. If a person is outside of the United States but already has an unexpired H-1B visa stamp in the passport as of June 24th of 2020, then the presidential proclamation or executive order does not apply to such a, such a person. But the executive order does not specify what type of visa is required. It simply says a non-immigrant visa. So arguably, if a person is outside of the United States but has a valid either F-1 visa for like as a student because they were on OPT or what have you, or a B-1B to tourist visa. Question is, is that person exempt from this so-called travel ban under the presidential proclamation? According to the plain language of the executive order, yes, it appears that the person could and should be exempt. Well, on Monday, June 29th, 2020, the president amended the executive order to clarify that having a valid visa on the effective date of the order, namely June 24th, will only exempt the person from the executive order if the non-immigrant visa is of any of the classifications which was specified and pursuant to which the foreign national is seeking entry into the United States. In other words, if you as an H-1B employee or your employee has a valid H-1 visa on the effective date and wishes to enter the U.S. on H-1B status, then there's no problem because the executive order will not prevent you from being admitted to the U.S. On the other hand, if you have, let's say, an F-1 or B-1-B-2 as of the effective date, you cannot use that as the basis for the employee to enter and make the argument that the employee is exempt from the executive order. So next, I'm going to invite you, Joel, to talk about the third criteria about the valid travel document. Yeah, I, I think we can very quickly put this, this point to rest. Um, in practice, if you have a valid travel document, it's very likely going to be an advanced parole document. Um, that's, you know, there are some very unusual circumstances where you may see other things, but 
for most, you know, 99% of the employers and employees, the only thing, the only time you're going to see this is if the person has advanced parole, they have a valid advanced parole document as of June 24th, they are not, uh, they're, they're permitted to return in H-1B status, uh, or at least they're not prohibited by the executive order. Thank you very much. So, Ali, let's have you look at the exemptions, people who are exempted from the restrictions imposed under this executive order so that some of the people on this conference call or their family or friend will hopefully be able to fit in very clearly to take advantage and be able to re-enter the United States safely. Yeah, absolutely, Sheila. So there's a couple different exemptions here, right? So the first one is if you are the spouse or child of a U.S. citizen. That one's pretty black and white straightforward. Uh, the second is if you're seeking entry to provide temporary labor essential to the U.S. food supply chain. So how is this going to come up? Let's say you're an IT consultant who works for an agricultural company or a grocery chain, something along those lines. There may be some room here to argue that this is related to the food supply chain um, and therefore you are exempt from this order. Uh, the next exemption is if you are an individual whose entry would be in the national interest. So for purposes of the executive order, it's going to include all of the following. This is anyone critical to the defense, law enforcement, diplomacy, or national security of the United States. People involved in the provision of medical care to individuals who have contracted COVID-19 and are currently hospitalized. Those involved with the provision of medical research at U.S. facilities to help the U.S. combat COVID-19. Individuals necessary to facilitate immediate and continued economic recovery of the United States or children who would age out of eligibility for a visa because of this executive order or the executive order that Trump issued in April related to immigrant visas. So all of these exemptions are built into the executive order, but consular officers are going to have discretion to really determine whether they think a person qualifies for one of these exemptions. Ah, okay, so this is really helpful. So a company that is now listening to this conference call today may determine that, you know what, my H-1B employee is absolutely necessary to facilitate to continue to facilitate the immediate and continued economic recovery of my company and thereby it could impact, you know, dozens or hundreds of employees and therefore it would impact the economic recovery of the United States. Uh, consular officer may think that's too vague and tenuous. Maybe if it's a little closer, a little tighter, that might work in some of the examples like you gave, Ali. So that's really interesting. I think it's, it would, it would be good to explore it, but it's interesting that there's no blanket exemption, for example, it doesn't say that you are exempt automatically. It still requires the consular officers to use their discretion to determine whether a person qualifies for an exemption as opposed to saying a medical doctor working on COVID-19 is exempt and should just send in the visa application. Uh, they actually have to sort of claim the exemption and argue and hopefully get successful. It's unfortunate. Next, we are going to talk about the time frame uh, and what's expected and you know what do we see as the future in, in terms of near-term uh, future for this executive order. Uh, as we know, the executive order is currently scheduled to run through December 31st of 2020, which is end of this calendar year. But as the proclamation itself mentions, it, is, it can be either modified or extended. And then, of course, there is the possibility that federal courts 
will be tapped into to block the enforcement of this executive order because we already have individuals, uh, families who are separated that, again, are going to make the claim and the argument, which is true because the entire uh, proclamation was based on using the global pandemic as the emergency for the president to use his emergency powers to pass this uh, executive order slash proclamation. But for, for example, for family members entering on the age four who don't have an EAD or small children, dependent children, minor children entering on the age four who are not going to take away jobs from American workers, even arguably, which itself is a big different issue because H1 workers actually help create jobs. Those are possible cases where I think lawyers and litigation is very possible. Um, there are other, again, a number of additional provisions in the executive order which do not have an immediate effect, but it calls for various executive agencies within the federal government to look at implementing new regulations or taking additional actions related to various employment-based immigration issues. I know a lot of people were concerned about the language about EB2 and EB3 people, uh, how that could impact their uh, potential for continuing to work in the United States or continuing to get their green cards processed, et cetera. We, we, there's also you know, an example that they may examine ways of ensuring that H-1B workers do not negatively impact U.S. workers, uh, such as prioritizing the highest paid H-1 workers for new H-1 cap cases or cap numbers. Again, it does not change anything within the United States for filing extensions or renewals, but it does impact those who are stuck abroad. Uh, but we don't know how the consular officers may interpret that because USCIS cannot use certain of these criteria mentioned in the proclamation for approving USCIS petitions within the United States. So that's a big overview and overcap of the executive order. We thought we would take care of that right away because we know it's very much in the hearts and minds of most of you all as employers. Uh, and then focus on the topic which we really had planned for today um, originally a month ago before we knew that this was going to, the proclamation would be issued right before this conference, a few, just within a few days before this live recording. So let's now move to the two memos that were rescinded. Joel, uh, can you talk and describe them a little bit and what they entail? Sure. Uh, so these memos were officially rescinded on June 17, 2020. Um, we knew this was coming, as I'll, 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 I'll touch on in a moment. Um, this was quickly, obviously, overshadowed by the executive order because shortly after it came out, we, we heard news of the executive order and everyone kind of forgot about that. But the rescission of, of, these, of these memos still is a pretty big deal. Um, so first, a little bit of background on how this all came to be. I, I think it goes without saying that the Trump administration did not, out of the goodness of their hearts, try to help out H-1B workers and employers by rescinding the memo. Um, quite the opposite, actually. Uh, this was triggered by a lawsuit filed by IT Serve Alliance. Uh, that's a, a trade group you may be familiar with that's made up of a lar large number of IT companies, most of them IT consulting firms. The government ultimately ended up losing the legal battle and then coming to an agreement with IT Serve Alliance to avoid further legal battles on this issue. Uh, per the settlement agreement, that was that uh, the they did, they agreed to rescind the USCIS's 2010 memo entitled "Determining Employer-Employee Relationship for Adjudication of H-1B Petitions." 
and also the 2018 memo, which you may not be, you may be familiar with, maybe not, but you've certainly been impacted by in the last couple of years. This is the contracts and itineraries requirement for H-1B petitions involving third-party work sites. That's the title of that memo. Um, and that's been kind of wreaking havoc within the world of, uh, especially IT consulting firms for the past couple of years. Thank you, Joel. So, uh, Ali, I may invite you to speak a little bit about the impact of these memos, particularly on the issue of employer-employee relationship, which was like the most common uh, sort of RFE or reason for denial. They would just throw that in in almost to on in almost every single H-1 petition, whether it was an extension, a new one, uh, a renewal, an amendment, what have you. Sure. So, yeah, the the rescission of both these memos uh, makes a really big difference in how USCIS is going to be required to look at the issue of employer-employee relationship moving forward. We've already started to see it and have started using IT Server Alliance in our RFE responses, and it's working. So what's going to happen now, right, is the USCIS is going to have to comply with the regu what the regulation actually says as opposed to this twisted interpretation it's been using for the past few years. So under the regulations, an employer-employee relationship exists if the employer can show it may do one of the following, and that's hire, pay, fire, supervise, or otherwise control the work of the beneficiary. So in filing the petition, the employer must provide a copy of any written contracts between the employer and the employee or a summary of the terms of an oral agreement if a written contract doesn't exist. Now, this document is going to be used to show the existence of that employer-employee relationship. Now, obviously, other forms of evidence, we can still use them. But USCIS is no longer allowed to use this prior really restrictive guidance they've been following for the past few years on employer-employee relationship to issue these insane RFEs and denials. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm sure it's music to the ears of most consulting company owners, business owners, people who have been doing H-1B petitions for decades and finding that in the last several years, especially since the Pearson Memo of 2010, this whole sort of new slew of RFEs and reasons for denial, which have only become from bad to worse from the time it was issued, that original 2010, January 2010 memo, to, you know, under the W administration, Obama administration, and now the Trump administration, where it's become more and more restrictive. So these cases, I'm also very pleased and proud to be one of the legal advisors for IT Serve Alliance that have, for years, been telling uh, that organization the importance of challenging the federal government or any federal agency when they violate the law, whether it is the Administrative Procedures Act or any other law, because... I think a lot of organizations tend to be hesitant to challenge the federal government, but as we have seen within the Moody Law Firm when we filed lawsuits for our employer clients, for individuals, that by actually filing these lawsuits, the government is actually more respectful of you. Fabulous that we were able to achieve this success through the ITSERV Alliance lawsuit, which is an incredible victory for all all H-1B uh, employers. The, so but this, the, the, the other issue that this discussed also is no longer requiring H-1B employers, particularly consulting companies, to have to provide 
the agreement with the end client of their of the need of their employees to be placed, for example, at a third-party client site. So the USCIS, in their notice, they concede that the regulations do not require that the employer needs to provide contracts or legal agreements between the parties. However, the H-1 employer must still demonstrate eligibility for the benefits sought, and one of the ways to do that is to provide copies of contracts between itself as the H-1B employer or petitioner and the H-1B employee to show that there is, in the other example, the employer-employee relationship, or if there's for the actual H-1 petition provided to provide copies if there are any such contracts that are available to ensure that the petition is approvable or should get approved. The employer still needs to provide evidence of the availability of non-speculative specialty occupation work as of the date of filing, but the 2010 and the 2018 memos that have led to many of these petitions being denied or the H-1 petitions with shorter timeframe durations are no longer in force. Again, the USCIS is now required, obviously, to provide the H-1 for the entire time duration requested unless they have a very good reason for needing to truncate or shorten the H-1B approval period. Uh, Joel, if I can invite you to talk a little bit about the 2018 memo, uh, why it was especially insidious. Yeah, uh, I mean, that memo, when, when they released the 2018 memo, they also issued a press release, and the, the title of that press release was USCIS Strengthens Protections to Combat H-1B Abuses. Uh, and that's really been the mindset of the USCIS in recent years. Uh, they, they say, hey, H-1B employers, especially uh, consulting firms, they're abusing the system, and we're here to stop them. And that, that's really not what's going on, and that's not their role, but that is how they have been approaching this. And so by rescinding this memo, it was, it was a pretty significant win. Um, the 2018 memo strongly implied that if an H-1B worker is to be placed off-site, that the USCIS, the officers adjudicating those cases should not rely on statements from the petitioning employer to evidence that their specialty occupation work available. Instead, they were strongly encouraged to demand corroborating evidence, including the full contractual chain between all the parties involved, detailed, detailed statements of work from the end client describing the job in detail, etc. Um, and as most consulting firms know, as probably all of these employers right now that you're on the phone right now, many end clients are reluctant to provide all of this. In fact, it's not uncommon at all for an end client to refuse to provide anything. They don't want to get involved. The USCIS has, knows this. They've long known this. And it seems fairly obvious that a big reason that the USCIS wanted its officers to focus on this type of evidence was because they knew it would result in many more cases being denied, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? It almost seems like they had no hesitation in cashing checks so quickly from all of the employers and then issuing denials, or when they issued approvals, it was for two months or three months, or sometimes it was expired even before the person got the H-1 petition approval. So in rescinding these memos, the USCIS has specified uh, that evidence of specific day-to-day -day assignments is no longer required, but the officer can still review that the position as described by the H-1 employer 
in order to determine whether the burden of proof has been met that there is actually specialty occupation work available. So they are looking at that. That is the big reason that is left because the job duties need to show that it is specialty occupation work. So with that, I'm going to invite Ali to talk a little bit about uh, the um, truncated expiration dates of the I-94s uh, since the 2018 memo. Sure. So I think we touched on this a little bit before. One of the biggest issues was the issuance of I-94s that were shortened. So let's say you file with a statement of work that's valid for six months, and then USCIS would only give an approval up until that end date. So this was occurring even in cases where there's a long-term project. Maybe you've got a letter that says this is a long-term project, it's going to be extended, and we only issue statements of work every quarter or every year, you know, per standard operating procedures. It's just how our contracts work. Sometimes these cases would, they'd still get approved, but the I-94s were being issued only for the end date of whatever statement of work was provided, and oftentimes, because of processing times, that date had already passed, which meant the H-1B employee was, upon approval, immediately out of status and immediately starting to accrue unlawful presence in a lot of cases. So, for instance, I had a case where they gave us an approval which was backdated by six months. And then, you know, the employee was out of status and unlawfully present and was, unlawfully present, excuse me, and was scrambling to figure out, you know, what do we do? Um, so hopefully, the, with the new rescission, this, this shouldn't really be happening anymore. Um, importantly, though, keep in mind, the rescission doesn't entirely prevent USCIS from limiting periods of petition entirely. So USCIS can still do it, but they're required to provide an explanation as to why the validity period is shortened. So this, you know, it's not maybe entirely gone, it could come up, but it's going to be a lot more difficult for the government to do it. And as we previously discussed, they cannot base this limitation on requiring documents that aren't mandated by law and regulation. So what does this all mean, right? In practice, it's still too soon to tell. This is all too fresh. As mentioned, this rescission only occurred a couple weeks ago. Um, so we're going to need to see how this is interpreted by officers who are actually adjudicating the cases. At this point, we still recommend providing strong project documents like statements of work, purchase order, contracts, letters, et cetera, when you have them. If they're not available, you know, that's fine. You know, file without them. But when they are available, it does help give employers and their legal representatives with a stronger position that these cases can be approved. And now we have a strong basis to argue that even without these documents, this case should be approved. Right. Okay. Thank you, Ali. Uh, I know that we are always mindful of your time, and we try to have all these monthly teleconferences between 30 to 45 minutes. I think we're well within that time. So we want to talk briefly about the importance of the issue of litigation, both for you as individual employers, groups, teams, organizations, etc. So I am going to invite my esteemed colleague, Joel, to talk a little bit about the issue Sure. Uh, the, the most common type of lawsuit uh, in the H-1B context that, that we're going to be talking about, the, the one we see the most often when we're filing lawsuits against the USCIS, 
um, has been where you have an H-1B that's been denied and the employer sues based on the Administrative Procedures Act or the APA. So you'll, you'll hear the, 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 the term APA a lot and that's what that stands for. Um, essentially, you're saying that the USCIS did not comply with the laws or regulations when it denied your H-1B petition. Uh, for instance, the regulation states that one of the ways a position can qualify as a specialty occupation is if a bachelor's degree or higher is normally the minimum requirement for entry into the position. Um, you provide in your petition ample evidence in your, your petition that the position required such a degree, uh, but USCI still denies the, the petition, um, saying that you haven't met the requirement. So in a case like that, you can file a motion or appeal, but first of all, the success rate for motions and appeals tends to be pretty low, and the process can take months. So a lot of times we will, you know, look at it and say, look, you, you may want to just file a lawsuit here because you, you tend to, if you have a good case, have a much better chance of success. And um, frankly, it can move a lot quicker because you can push the government to try to negotiate an agreement. Um, so I, I don't know, Ali, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, success rates in federal courts vary, right? Every case is going to be different. So depending on the strength of the facts and the legal arguments and anything you can provide to support the case, the strength is going to, you know, go up and down. But realistically, suing in federal courts, the only way to get the case out of the hands of the Department of Homeland Security and into the hands of a more neutral party uh, who's going to be able to objectively review the case and make a determination. Going to federal court and suing also may encourage USCIS to re-examine the case and maybe even negotiate an agreement. So USCIS may decide that they don't have a great argument to make before a judge and might just offer to approve the case. This is fairly common and it's a mutually beneficial outcome, especially when the USCIS realizes it doesn't stand on any sort of solid legal ground. Um, there are other forms of lawsuits. For example, if an H-1B petition has been pending for a really long time, maybe even after upgrading it to premium processing, but it seems to be stuck in some kind of ambiguous quote-unquote security check, something like that. For cases like these, you can actually file what's called a writ of mandamus to ask a judge to order the USCIS to complete adjudication of the case. Absolutely. Thank you, Ali. And of course, the Muthi Law Firm, we do have a lot of experience with filing writs of mandamus for the last maybe 15 years, 20 years. So as you can see in today's teleconference, uh, we have discussed in detail regarding the rescission of the 2010 and the 2018 memos and uh, had a fairly large discussion on large-scale litigation when you are able to address a problem that will benefit your, yourself, your employees, um, and in the process also make a difference that will be impactful. I think that's the classic win-win-win all around for everybody involved. And clearly, as you, we can see, the IT Serve Alliance lawsuit was largely in that uh, vein as well because in addition to rescinding the, the memos that both Joel and Ali described in great detail, the USCIS also agreed to reopen and approve each of the specific cases, I think there were over 60 H-1B cases brought forth by uh, IT Serve Alliance members and the, the, their H-1B denials, and all of those cases were pretty much approved. 
So, you know, I think it's a big round of applause, kudos to the organization for deciding to take the leap of faith, agree to do the lawsuits, stick its neck out and make a huge impact for so many other thousands of other technology companies and their employees um, so that they can get their H1 petitions approved in the United States. So um, I know that our time is running tight. Uh, my, uh, my, again, on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, as president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm, on behalf of Joel Yanovich, a member at the Murthy Law Firm, Ali Terry, who has been with the H1B department for a long time and whom we consider to be one of our superstars uh, and in the non-immigrant visa department, and all of us at the Murthy Law Firm, we thank you for joining us today. We look forward to continuing to take good care of you and your employees on all your immigration-related issues, whether it is lawsuits, whether it's individual challenges, whether it's filing the petitions, filing RFEs, NOIDs, or anything else. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll continue to look forward to taking great care of you. Have a good afternoon. Thank you. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.